Welcome to Horror Makes Us Happy, the podcast where we ask the question, what is it about horror that makes us happy? Your hosts are Steve Becker and myself, Chris Whitman, and you can find out more about us at our website, horrormakesushappy.com. Before we get started, this is the trigger warning. This is a horror podcast, so we're going to be potentially discussing some uh, disturbing subjects. So there could be discussions about things like child abuse, F-bomb rape, uh, bad things. We're going to talk about bad things. So there's the warning. Steve, what do we have coming up? Coming up, uh, we've got about 12 different people on the uh, calendar, so I'm not going to list them all. Number of uh, authors, two actors, I think, and a director. Chris's webcomic pieces, piecesofflesh.com, my book, A Guide to the Recovery Toolbox, currently has a coupon code LE69E at smashwords.com. It's got 80 tools that I have learned through recovery, counseling, 12-step stuff, all that kind of stuff. Good stuff if you're interested into that. Today, we're talking to somebody who, if you are a fan of horror, probably needs no introduction, but we'll give one anyway. Chris Sarandon uh, for the the wider audience, probably best known for roles in The Princess Bride and the voice of Jack Skellington, but for the horror audience, probably best known for Fright Night, Child's Play, and The Resurrected. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Please. My pleasure. Uh, I don't know how much uh, chit-chat there was about the theme of what we do here, but basically we break it down into four sections. It's childhood, teenage years, and adulthood, talking more about what you were a fan of less about your body of work mm-hmm. and then a wrap up section at the end where we maybe talk about any common themes that, or common threads that keep coming up in, in the conversation. Great. So starting with childhood, what are your, what are your, some of your earliest memories of scary things? Oh gosh. Uh, everything was scary to me when I was a kid. I think I share this with a lot of people, I think. Mm. Yeah. It's uh, not but, uncommon. But very, a very specific memory I have is I lived in a small town and uh, the movie theater was maybe three blocks away from my house at the top of the hill where most of the businesses were. And also my father's restaurant was up there as well. And we had two movie theaters in the town. One was called the palace, of course. And one was called the Beckley theater because it was a, the name of the town, Beckley, West Virginia. And I remember very vividly a showing of the thing. Now this is, I'm going back. The original. To the 50s, the original uh, Christian Nyby directed, and in reality, probably Robert Wise uh, helped out a lot. He was the producer of record. Christian Nyby was the director of record. But the movie, I think, shows a lot of touches of Robert Wise, who was one of our great American directors who directed West Side Story, the original movie of West Side Story. Hmm. And at any rate, my town was a very safe place to live. I was allowed to go out and hang out with my friends. And on this particular evening, I think some friends and I went to see The Thing. As you do. And after the movie, I walked home alone because my friends and I split up. They (laughs) went to their various homes. And all I had to do was just walk down a hill to my house. It was actually a kind of uh, apartment home was what we called them. They were sort of all connected. My father owned, owned it with my uncle. And there were a number of condominiums in a row. And uh, I remember vividly walking down the hill. And as I walked, walking faster and faster, it was dark. And I knew that the thing was behind me. (laughs) And he was coming after my ass. Uh, And from that day forward until I had to be in my mid-teens, he came and visited me every night. Hmm. I would lie in bed. I would literally pull the covers up over my head so that he couldn't see me, of course. <laughs> you know, that's a, a, a ridiculous conceit in the first place. <laughs> no, it's out of sight, out of mind. They're gone. Yeah, right, works. exactly. And uh, it was, a, I, I think in many ways, a, a, the creature was a kind of a personification of some of the things that I was kind of holding inside me. Some of the, the maybe some of the tension that was existed in my my household. Mm-hmm. Um, my father and mom were were at odds uh, at times. The actual figure of my father was the kind of you know the overreaching kind of what uh, fear influence in my life at the mm-hmm. at that time. He was not an abusive man to me, but he was to my mom, and and I became sort of a you know in in the middle of all that. Right. And I think that. The thing was a, a a way of my projecting out into the world these these fears that I had of 
of what was going on in the household and the tensions, the internal stuff that I just didn't let out. Right. And uh, 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 I, I still remember the movie vividly. And when I watch it, I go back to that time in my life. Was this like a, uh, a recurring nightmare or dream yeah, or like a sleep yeah. paralysis thing? Like the Both. person in the corner all, kind of deal? All three, all yeah. four, all five. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All of them, whatever number yeah, it is. All exactly. <laughs> this thing was, and, and what the brilliance of the movie was that it's not what you saw, but what you didn't see yeah. that was frightening. Uh, I think we've lost a lot of that in, in modern horror movies, but there are yeah. directors who work like that. And those are the ones that I admire the most. Right. Some of our guests have spoken of a dividing line where prior to this, uh, they were afraid of horror and after it, they learned to enjoy it or find some pleasure in it. Was there ever that kind of line for you? I never went back to a horror movie after that until I was, you know, way in my adult life. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And even then I'm an easy scare. (laughs) I mean, you'll ask my wife, we'll be sitting and watching something that is not necessarily, you know, does not have a great horror component, but Mm. if there's a jump scare, <laughs> you know, I, she 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 moves out of my vicinity because she knows <laughs> just get out of striking range. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Oh, because she knows that I'm just going to start. Well, that's a good I'm, thing. I'm a major easy easy scare. It, it's interesting, you know. You guys might know a, a director or of a director named Mike Flanagan. Yes, yes. I just did a podcast with Mike, who's a lovely, lovely man, and you know, I asked him because he he's an ex- I think an extraordinary filmmaker. I said to him, considering his background, which was that he grew up in a fairly, not necessarily a settled home, because they moved a lot. His dad was in the postcard, Coast Guard. But that the, the uh, family dynamic was very strong. They mm-hmm. sat around the table and they talked about their day and they shared things and, you know, everything that my family <laughs> didn't really do. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, why horror, Mike? And he said, well, you know, I grew up afraid of a lot of things. And just as you intimate to me when you said, did I lose that, that sense of being scared? But Mike said, the more I watched, the more, if you want to call it agency I had in terms of not being afraid, mm-hmm. because I was afraid of a lot of other things. I was afraid that my father, who was at sea a lot, his father was in the Coast Guard, that he wasn't coming home, that we had to move again. Uh, there were anything, a number of things that I was afraid of, and the horror helped me get over that. Yep. Mm-hmm. And and that's something that Mike says that he hopes that his films are able to do for people as well. Both entertain and in a way exorcise yeah. that or um in, in invigorate, strengthen. What's yeah. For here? yeah. 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 Empower. You're touching on something that, uh, so there's sort of two things that we're doing here. Short term, any of your fans who listen to this stuff might get something interesting out of the conversation. Long term, we're hoping, you know, not everybody's going to be exactly the same. People are going to fall into a certain number of buckets. The question is, how many buckets are there? What are they? You know, can we start identifying trends like that kind of thing? So Mm -hmm. that that is definitely part of what we're trying to do here. But again, that's the long-term stuff. Well, Um, good, good for you that you have a, a, you know, a a more far reaching objective. Thank you. uh, In your show. Uh, So other than the thing, any other media jump out to you as being, uh, you know, from my, from my childhood? No, because I refuse to go back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was, that was the last enough. Yeah, I was going. I was going to watch a lot of musicals uh, and oh. a lot of uh, happy movies. Ah. Uh, I was not going back to to see her, <laughs> a know, several her, her years film. long palate cleanser. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I think uh, real quick, I just want to say I think it's funny that you bring up Mike Flanagan directly after the thing because looking up and reminding myself of what the creature and the thing looked like, it definitely reminds me of Moonlight Man in uh, Gerald's Game. If you've seen that film, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes. A lot of similarities oh there. yeah. Oh Very yeah. Possible he got some uh, inspiration from the thing. Quite maybe, possibly. Maybe. Yeah. 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 I, I I watched that film before I had a a chance to talk to Mike. I watched that and uh, Midnight Mass, which is mm-hmm. just brilliant. Yeah. It's just brilliantly done. The next two questions I'm going to ask you are a pair. I'm going to start with the negative one first, so we can end on the positive. The negative one being: Do you remember the first person you hurt? Hmm. And you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. It's just you know. yeah. As is an option. Golly, I was very careful uh, as I was growing up because I was a, I think a pretty sensitive kid. Mm-hmm. That I, mm-hmm. I also had empathy, particularly for people who were outsiders, because I was 
uh, in a way, an outsider. I was a Greek American. My father was an immigrant. My mother was uh, the, ch- the child of immigrants, and they sp- spoke Greek at home and actually in public as well when they were communicating with each other. And so I had a very strong sense of feeling other, mm-hmm. even though I figured out a way to become popular. I had a lot of friends, and uh, ultimately, I you know got through my elementary and junior high and and high school years uh, as a fairly popular kid. But there was always something uh, of the other, mm-hmm. sort of hanging back in my psyche. And so I, I can't recall going out of my way to hurt somebody. I I may have inadvertently, but then right. are we aware of when we hurt someone right. inadvertently anyway, unless we're made aware of it? Right. Not usually at a young age now. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't necessarily see it as a, a, a great, you know, a wonderful part of my personality because I was constantly sort of, you know, trying to scope out situations. And uh, I guess one of the reasons probably why I became an actor. Your answer uh, still gives us some something interesting about you. Yeah. So uh, I can't I can't think of it because <laughs> I do remember that I was hurt several times okay. uh, as I was growing up. There was a kid in elementary school who bullied me, and I was terrified of him. It wasn't a horror movie, but it was a horror movie in my head <laughs> right. because I was uh, fantasizing exactly what he was going to do to me uh, as opposed to what he said he was going to do to me. Uh, and the, And what was in my head was always worse. Of course. Do you remember the first person you helped? Oh, golly. <laughs> uh, no, not really. I don't remember the first person I helped. I do remember that I, uh, uh, again, going back to that facet of my personality of being somebody who you know was on guard uh, and observant about when other people were hurt, mm-hmm. so that I was, uh, I was a kind of kid who was helpful mm-hmm. to people, uh, to, to people who were in some emotional difficulty or whatever. Again, not a. I don't consider it a perfect trait because I did it at my own expense. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I can't really think of okay. a very specific person. No, not every question is going to land. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember uh, any time in your childhood when you felt complete, completely calm or safe or at bliss? Yes, watching or actually first because we we were late to get a. a television set where I Listening. lived. <laughs> and we listened to a lot of radio. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm talking, because uh, I was born in 1942. So I'm talking the 1940s when radio was everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that there was a lot of wonderful, creative drama, as well as comedy on the radio. So I remember very, very vividly uh, in my, you know, say in the mid late 40s of We've spread an afghan, a rug that's been crocheted or knitted, uh, out in front of the. We had a big zenith radio uh, and record player uh, that was the size of a, you know, half the size of our house. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would lie in front of it and listen to a, a program called The Shadow, mm-hmm. whose the log line was, "Who knows." What evil lurks in the hearts of men? Yep, there it is. The shadow knows. Mm -hmm. And the FBI in peace and war. And Mm -hmm. uh, there was a program called Luigi with a a famous character actor named J. Carol Nash playing this Italian sort of uh, airhead guy. Uh, uh, The Jack Benny show. Jack Benny was a famous American comedian from that, that time. And the extraordinary thing about that experience was that you could, for instance, Jack Benny was very famous. He did a wonderful take when somebody would talk about money because he was legendarily, at least the character that he played, that he was a cheapskate. Mm -hmm. He was a miser. And whenever anybody would say anything about uh, his spending money, he would always do a take. But it was something that you couldn't see, you could hear. And it was hysterical. Hmm. Uh, and there's no way to explain it except to, to know that the imagination is very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, an extraordinary skill of acting. Yeah, if, you yeah. can, if you can do a take, like a facial expression that yes. you have to express through radio. That, that the audience can sense. Yes. And so my imagination was really peaked at that time in my life because I didn't have anything to see. I had to see it in my head. 
Right. Mm -hmm. And then after a while, so that was one of the times when I think I was totally content. And then when television came, my favorite television show, and I don't know if some of your listeners know of this or not, there was a show called Your Show of Shows, Mm -hmm. which starred a man named Sid Caesar. And uh, the writers in that show were Mel Brooks, Woody Allen, Neil Simon, a guy by the name of Larry Gelbart, who created MASH. Mm. And um, I'm forgetting somebody, but at any rate, you know, this, it was like this extraordinary group. Oh, and Carl Reiner. Yes. And the, it was an anarchic kind of almost a, a virtually improvisational comedy show. Essentially what they did was they created the kind of template for the skit, these skits, the, the, uh, and then the, the actors, these extraordinary actors would just go, they would speak in foreign languages, but they were pidgin languages. They weren't mm-hmm. real. Right. And you were convinced that they were speaking the language, except that they would throw Amer- uh, English words in for, for emphasis, uh, particularly on laugh lines. Brilliant, brilliant comics. And I remember sitting in front of the television and being literally paralyzed with laughter. And there was something about that, again, that escape into that, that world of this this wild kind of uh, I- improvisational comedy that just it, it spoke to me okay. and i think uh it spoke to me for the rest of my life because i i ended up after i finished if you want to call it drama school i was in a in a, a theater program uh getting my master's degree but it was a, a performing program Mm-hmm. And after I finished it, I had a year of working with an improv company in, in Washington, D.C. And there was something about that training, because we would do experimental plays at night for audiences, and then we'd also do improv with the audience. Okay. And the guy who ran the company was trained by a woman named Viola Spolin, who was the mother of a guy by the name of Paul Sills, who Paul Sills created the Second City. Ah. And all of the the various iterations that were spawned from that, uh, and so and they were all theater games that this woman, Paul Seal's mother, created for kids essentially. Mm. And we did these games both with adults uh, in our uh, nighttime program, and then we also worked in uh, the day. Uh, we did plays for kids in in elementary, junior high, and high schools. Okay. And we would do uh, we do a one act play called The Marriage Proposal, which is a play by Anton Chekhov, and then talk to the kids about the play, and then we do improv with the kids. And kids are fundamentally, particularly kids who are unsophisticated, who are not sitting around going, "Oh, you know what? I'm too cool to do this." Mm-hmm. They're brilliant at improv, mm-hmm. and uh, we got a chance to work with them and that was a transcendent experience as well to be in the middle of an improv with a six-year-old and he's doing (laughs) and he's better than you yes (laughs) you know bit of a savant there yeah yeah Uh, so those are the kind of the the touchstones that i think of when i was happiest and and of course it it was obviously had to do with either storytelling or performing Mm -hmm. and that's how i ended up where (laughs) where i am today not a bad thing to do. Yeah. No, did you participate in Halloween as a child? I did as a child. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, although uh, as a grown up, my children, I have three kids who are now grown and have children, but my children were always disappointed in me because I didn't dress up during Halloween when I was a grown up, And they kept saying, daddy, why don't you dress up? <laughs> You're like, Halloween. I do this all day for work. And, yeah, exactly. I say I do this for, I do Halloween for a living. Yes. I don't have to. Yeah. Besides, this is your day to dress up. Yes, I just, exactly. I chaperone. But I know, I, I, we all know many, many adults for whom Halloween is a highlight of their Please. year. You know? Present. Did you have yep. a favorite costume when you were a kid? I, I think it had to do, a lot of it had to do with, I had an older brother. Mm. And when my brother was around, we would kind of dress in tandem. I remember once uh, uh, we dressed as gypsies when I was a kid. Okay. I also, uh, my mother put me into a kindergarten that was also a dance school. Okay. 
And I was one of the only boys in the dance, in the dance school. So I have a lot of pictures of me with like surrounded by six girls, mm-hmm. which was, I guess, the beginning of a wonderful time in my life. I was going to say uh, that age. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, you know, but boys, you, you know, get, generally. You yeah. yeah, I was always, you know, always had a girlfriend when I was growing up. And so I think a lot of it had to do with what we decided to do when we were you know, my brother and I were, were, were going to do in tandem when we went out to trick or treat. I was much younger. I was six years younger than he. But that was, yeah, that's the one I remember. I can't remember anything else, you know, specifically uh, other than I do remember, you know, that it was great fun. Do you remember a least favorite costume? No. Okay. Was there anybody else in your family who were fans of horror? No. Okay. No. I mean, when you think about it, coming from a, an immigrant family, Mm-hmm. Uh, they were familiar enough with horror in their own lives, so that uh, I don't think that horror was a uh, True. an escape for them. Right. right. Hmm. You know, my dad grew up uh, dirt poor and was literally sent away from home when he was 13 years old to work in a bakery with an uncle in a different country in a lang- uh, with a language that he didn't understand. Uh, and he worked there for like eight years. Can relate to that. Yeah. So, you know. They, the, and during a war. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, horror was, was uh, uh, something that was, I think, very familiar to them. Yeah. My father's side of the family was Polish, and on that side of the family in Poland, going back far enough, yeah. the families just did s- subsistence farming. They didn't farm with the idea of making more to sell. It's yeah, just right. enough to, to, to live on. Yeah, yeah. And so if the crops failed, you were screwed. Oh, yeah. And, um, and there was one branch of the family that had a decently sized farm and a number of other relatives in the family would send their kids to this aunt and uncle to help for them to, you know, keep them as hands on the farm, feed them. And then when they were 18, Mm -hmm. they said, okay, you got to go because we got another cousin here who needs uh, a a mouth feed to be fed. You got to go so we can get this one in. Uh, It's, you know, when you think about it, we are so privileged. Uh, yes. at least in the United States and in most of the countries of the developing world, uh, yeah. in that these are concerns that we, uh, you know, they're obviously sizable portions of our population. Many too many of them yeah. uh, do have to worry about what they're going to eat when they get up in the morning. But most of us don't. Yeah. And not only that, but, you know, we're also witnessing a, a war in which, there are people who not only don't know what they're going to eat when they get up in the morning, but don't know if they're going to have a home, right. uh, don't know if they're going to be alive. So <laughs> uh, there are horrors enough in this world, I think. True. Talking about teenage years, you yeah. you did mention that you kind of bypassed it uh, horror into, into your adult years, and that is not uncommon. There, we've talked to other people that that was the same for it as usually well. ebbs and flows. Interest in childhood, mm-hmm. not so much in teenage, uh, more a parental thing in adulthood. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned you had this recurring dream about the thing. Did that continue into teenage years? Uh, yeah, into my mid-teens, I was afraid of the dark for a long time. Actually, after that. Uh, Even into my adult years, I remember when I was in my 20s, in my first marriage, we had a little house uh, up in uh, north of New York City, and there was a power outage, and uh, I remember I had to go into the basement to make sure that it wasn't the fuse box Mm -hmm. that was out, that it was an actual power outage for the entire area because the house was a little separated from the neighbor's houses and we couldn't really see them. Mm. And there was nobody else there but me, and I knew I had to go to the basement, and I was scared shitless. <laughs> My mid-20s, okay? And finally, I just said, and actually, this is kind of what Mike was talking about, too, is that I went into the basement, and I just said, you know what? Fuck this. I'm gonna, <laughs> exactly. You know I'm going sta- no. to stay here until oh. it's gone. Oh. And I okay. went down to the basement, and I just stood there. Faced your fears. Yeah. And I had all sorts of, you know, there was a lot of kind of uh, memory coming at me, uh, particularly of this uh, event earlier in my life. And I just kept breathing and I just kept looking around. And and actually, the dark became clearer. It became more uh, knowable. Yeah. 
And once it's knowable, then it can be dealt with. Mm -hmm. And from that time onward, I had no more fear of the dark. And it, it's, a, it's a sort of seminal moment in my life. Good. It's it's interesting that you even kind of touched on it because I was, as you say, you know, being afraid of the dark into your twenties is probably not that common, and I was wondering what what that might have been, and you kind of alluded to that that you had these memories come up that it's good that you were able to face them. Yeah, yeah. Is it something you feel like comfortable sharing or no? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Why are we here? No, I mean yeah. what the memories were of of what. That came up when you were down there in the dark? Oh, it just uh, particularly that time earlier in my life when I was afraid of the dark and covering my head with the ah, covers. And I would okay. literally go into a kind of, you know, sort of fugue state where I, th I imagined that I was, that I had risen above the bed and somehow that, and I was kind of wrapped up so that that would keep me safe. Hmm. And it was, it was almost a, uh, it was a, well, I, I guess it was a sort of cross between a meditation and a kind of, I, I don't know. <laughs> I just, I well, just, it sounds like it worked. It was, yeah. It, well, it kept me safe, yeah. but it kept coming back too. It didn't leave me. So it didn't, it didn't necessarily uh, stop the, the fear. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's really that uncommon to have a, uh, an adult's uh, fear of the dark or fear of like, uh, what was it you were discussing earlier when, where you could, you felt that there was someone behind you. I oh, still, yeah. to this day, when walking down either an alley or a hallway, yeah. I know in 100% of my rational mind that there is nothing behind me, but I just get a physical feeling and a presence of some force from behind me. And it, it almost like quickens your pace, mm -hmm. makes you move along a little quicker. Yeah, but maybe exactly. The answer exactly. is to just face <clears throat> your demons and sit in there for a minute with it. Yeah. The thing that I'm thinking about is um, relating also to my own experiences. When I lived in Wisconsin, um, my father and his second wife, it was not a good relationship. And I, at that time, I was in grade school, so third, fourth grade or younger, sometime between kindergarten and like third or fourth grade. And I used to get pounding migraines, like, you know, seeing mm. colors and things like that. And fortunately we had a basement that was very cold and very dark. And I found that it was helpful for me to go down into the ah. dark and that would help me, you know, calm down and, and yeah, yeah. Ease, ease these, um, uh, the migraines. And I'm wondering if this, uh, maybe was tied into, cause you had said something about, uh, you know, your father wasn't uh, abusive to you, but was towards women potentially. And I'm wondering if maybe something was going on and you just said, let me go to my bed or go to a dark place to get away from this and mm -hmm. drama. And, you know, maybe it, I could see that being a situation as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in your teen years, moments of being completely calm or safe or at bliss in your teen years. Uh, the teen years would continue with particularly the watching uh, comedy Okay. Uh, and getting lost in that kind of feeling of almost comic euphoria, mm -hmm. particularly with the, that show that I was a big fan of. I think it ran for a number of years, and anything like it after, I remember being very much, very much in love with when I was growing up. And also, I had, I, I had, when I was uh, in high school, I was, aside from being a good student, I was also, uh, I was in a rock band. Oh. Okay. And I played the drums. I just decided I wanted to play the drums and it was reasonably musical. I, I sang in the church choir. I was an altar boy. And so I, I had that kind of, you know, that kind of ritual in my life, which made me feel calm. Mm -hmm. uh, and also uh, playing the drums, sitting behind a group of other musicians. And we became, you know, kind of the it band around our area. And we made some records and we toured um, the sort of the eastern part of uh, like West Virginia, Virginia, South Carolina, that area, Ohio. Uh, we, we also played with some, uh, at the time, people who were relatively major figures in the record, in the music world. And that was a time of great kind of feeling. Particularly, music has a, a great power of calm and healing it really does. Yeah. Uh, even rock and roll yeah. <laughs> even the Especially blues rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah i play guitar and bass I, I oh know. yeah oh yeah absolutely and and there's nothing like being part of a unit mm -hmm. and I, f I felt that with singing in the church choir 
singing in harmony. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in college, I, I just for the hell of it, uh, did something called Choral Union, where anybody could go, and for like I think it was a couple of hours a week, uh, the the conductor did very challenging pieces with people from the music department, but also people from the general student body. And we did, I, if you're, any of your listeners are familiar with any of these pieces, but we did the Verdi Requiem. We did the Mozart Requiem. We did the Carmina Burana that this guy Carl Orff wrote. That's a wonderful piece. That's just, and to sing with 200 people mm. and to sing in harmony, there's something about that vibration that occurs yes. between human beings that is, it's exhilarating. Yes. Yeah, uh, a lot of people who, if, you, if you've never sung in a group before, there's something very interesting where if it, even, it can even happen just between two people, but like you say, with 200, it's even more powerful. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Like when you get two people together and you hit the right note and the right harmony, at the, yep. just right, it, there's a, your whole Resonate. body vibrates. Yes, it moves yes. through your body. That's yeah. right. Yeah, it's really, uh, uh, and I keep, you know, I have a grandson who's 12 years old. One of my, I have nine grandkids. And my my grandson has a lovely singing voice, but he won't go out and use it. And I keep saying to him, you're missing an experience that you will never have in your life if you don't do it now, mm. if you don't just jump in. And it's about, you know, being a 12-year-old kid, yep. a boy particularly, and not wanting to be seen as what? Effeminate? I, I'm not sure what it is, but uh, I'm going to keep at him. Because <laughs> it was a great part of my life when I was growing up, particularly when I was a teenager in college and then uh, onward. There are bullies who will find anything to bully about, yep. regardless. And yep. so the lesson he may need to learn is about you know how to defend yourself about bullies in general, yeah, and then specifically learning how to apply it in that situation. Exactly. Moving into adult years, um, you had mentioned that, so you kind of came back to horror uh, as an adult. It, was it because of work first, or did you find it as a, as a fan first? I was always interested in movies mm. for most of my life from the time I really went to college. I was a big fan of what we call now Americana roots music, but at the time it was basically, you know, I lived in West Virginia. So when I went to college, there was a, a professor who went up into the hills and recorded people singing, playing a you know a three two or three string dulcimer or a banjo or whatever the the family instrument was. Yep, that sounds. And awesome. he would lug a tape recorder up into the hollers of West Virginia, and then come back and play these songs, and then show us songs that were written back in the 10th century uh, that came from Norse songs that became Celtic songs that became, you know, whatever, and that were passed down uh, uh, through an oral tradition. And that really fascinated me because I, I, I was able to link that with my background and the fact that roots music is not so different in different cultures. If, if you listen to music in, from Greece and Turkey and from the part of the world, the world of my, my father came from, it's not so different from the music that was played up in the hills of West Virginia. Yeah, That was something that interested me. And then also I became interested in, you know, uh, art films and foreign films and, and stuff that was a little more esoteric than what was coming through the kind of, you know, the, the general pipeline. And uh, so I was always a big fan of movies and i would seek out movies of great directors and i remember being exposed to i remember vividly seeing a nick rogue movie called don't look now okay which is uh donald sutherland julie christie about a couple whose child died and they go to venice and they think they see the child and it's the one of the scariest movies I've ever experienced in my life. And it's, it has nothing to do with the sort of common jump scare, the common uh, dismemberment of, <laughs> of a character in the movie. Right. Supernatural. It was all, yeah. it was all about what you think you see and you don't see. And 
and uh, intimations of that and the and the haunting essentially mm. because what this ha- what happens is that this child ends up being in the minds of the parents uh, a haunting and it's beautifully directed and really scary yeah. and then much later much later let the right one in ah that great eastern in, european right movie with, yeah that's just, I think, the greatest vampire movie of all time, next to Nos- Nosferatu. And I was also interested in because I saw Nosferatu, the you know the original Murnau, and uh, uh, the original Dracula movies, which were, again, much more, for want of a better term, that you just used supernatural. Yeah. Although Dracula was a horror movie, the Frankenstein movies. I was always a big fan of all the all the uh, the Frankenstein movies. Did you not see those until you were an adult? Uh, yeah, okay. not until I was an adult. Yeah, they didn't show where I was, where I lived, okay. and and I became a big fan of you know all the James Whale movies and and the extensions of those movies. I'm just trying to think of the other ones. Can't think I, of anything right off the top of my head, but those are the ones that come to mind. Yeah. I think uh, often when we talk about a particular movie, like for example, Let the Right One In, is there a particular scene that jumps to mind as being impactful to you? I haven't seen that movie probably in 20 years, if it's that old. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I think it is. Uh, yeah, I think it is. Uh, so I don't remember exactly. In fact, I just bought it on the Criterion collection (laughs) and want to watch it again because i haven't seen it in so long so i'm glad you reminded me i I need to watch it (laughs) all right well thank you for informing me i have one to add to my own criterion collection now yeah i have a huge a huge collection of criterion movies what about nosferatu or dracula is there a particular scene that jumps out to you just the character itself you know just nosferatu just the existence of that character in every scene is so freaking creepy (laughs) <laughs> you know uh, and, and klaus kinski i think no no that's not klaus kinski that's the later one that's the herzog nosferatu mm. right i'll defer to chris on that i think so but the original whoever the original nosferatu was was mm. so bloody just <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i get a, I get a, a little uh free song every time i think of it actually yeah it's like nowadays you know they're just so uh i don't want you know throw shade or anything, but there are, there seem to be fewer far between 100% great films to the point where when I'm watching something sometime and somebody just does a great job, like Nosferatu, yeah. I just, I just pointed the screen. I'm like acting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Which kind of pulls you out of it, but still it's, yeah. you know, uh, going to ask this pair again now for adult years, uh, again, starting with the negative, negative one first. Do you remember the last person you heard? I can think of times that I've been hurt, but mm. I can't think of the last person. I, I'm sure right. that somewhere along the way I've hurt somebody's feelings inadvertently, right. but often we're not aware right. of having yeah. hurt someone's feelings. Okay. Do you remember the last person you helped? Yeah, my kids. Hmm? I help my kids go. all the time. That's a good one. Uh, let's see. We already talked about Halloween. You don't dress up for that. Uh, anything terrify you in real life as an adult? Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I actually, I remember being frightened uh, about a year and a half ago. And this is not uh, something that I, I uh, talk about with any uh, interest in anybody feeling sorry for me because uh, it was a, a, a time that one in three Americans go, it's something that one in three Americans anyway, people in the world, I guess, go through. I, I got a cancer diagnosis. Okay. And uh, when I first heard the word, Mm-hmm. cancer uh, a chill obviously ran through me and i started going through and this was by the way a diagnosis that was fairly positive in the sense that the the diagnosis was for something that had not spread it was a a, a, a very early stage of this particular kind of cancer it was easily taken care of but just the fact that it was there right yeah i often and, think and, about that just to to hear you don't know exactly how you're going to react until you hear the words yeah and and also it's very interesting how other people's reaction Mm -hmm. to hearing it affects how they relate to you yeah yeah because generally speaking everybody was going oh i'm i'm so sorry to hear that i I, my thoughts are with you i i hope that and all that you know kind of talking around it Mm -hmm. and i had a, a something happen 
that was extraordinary, thinking back on it. Uh, I had to have a follow-up ultrasound because the surgeon who was going to go in and take it out needed to know if there were any lymph glands involved, etc. So he sent me in for a, uh, another ultrasound. And I went in to the ultrasound room and a young woman came in, the obviously the technician, and she's looking at my chart. And she looks at my chart and she says, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you, uh, Chris Saran? I said, yeah, yeah. She said, yeah, you, have, you have thyroid cancer. And I just for a minute, that kind of, <gasps> you know, that intake of breath where you mm -hmm. just go, what the, somebody just said it. Mm -hmm. And then <laughs> once I let that go, I realized that's what it is. Why am I, <laughs> why is everybody talking around it? for God's sake. Hmm. She's just telling me what she sees on this piece of paper. It has nothing to do with wanting to make me feel one way or another. And in fact, what it did was once I got over the kind of shock of her actually saying it out loud, it was liberating yeah. because it was out there. Right. Because then it's quantifiable. You yeah. know what it is. And then I can own it. Yeah. And then she sat down and was she literally talked me through the ultrasound. She said, well, here's where it is. And it looks like, yeah, there's no, I don't see anything around here. I don't see anything over here. I mean, it was very reassuring in a lot of ways. Not everybody gets that kind of diagnosis. But right. the fact is that it, it allowed me to, to, as you say, to own it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it was a, an extraordinary experience. And the follow-up was uh, amazing as well. The phrase putting the name on it reminded me of your the experience you shared about being in the basement. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yep. Some synchronicity there. Mm-hmm. So the next two questions I'm going to ask are going to cover your entire life, and it's not just about horror. I'll give you the, the same the two questions at the same time because it could be the same answer for both or two different answers. The first question being, what movie have you watched more times than any other? And then second question being, what would you consider your favorite movie? I would say I have several favorites. I've mentioned actually two of them. One of them I, I have to go back and well, actually both of them I have to go back and watch again. But I have to say that I have any time it comes on, I think all of us can say that we will we'll sit down and watch The Godfather again. Uh, I don't know if you guys would, but I would. <laughs> I would the first one. Yeah, the first one. Actually, I would watch uh, two as well. Two is good. Too. I would watch. Any number of times, I would watch How Green Was My Valley. Hmm. I would watch the great John Ford. Again, John Ford, The Searchers. I'd probably watch that any number of times, and I'd watch it ad nauseum. Again, I'm a huge John Ford fan. Oh, gosh. I mean, there are so many great films in American film history. I find that usually the first two or three things that come to mind come to mind for a reason. Yeah. I think we could probably guess some good reasons for the Godfather, but I'm not familiar with the other two. Um, why well, would you? How Green Was My Valley? Uh, also starred, by the way, one of the stars of Fright Night. Okay, Roddy McDowell. Oh, okay. Roddy McDowell was in this one. Yeah, yeah Roddy McDowell played. Night. And you guys have never seen How Green Was My Valley. You no. better after this <laughs> because it it's about the list it's now. about a small Welsh mining town, shot entirely in the hills of California. By the way. With Roddy, a wonderful actor named Walter Pigeon, another a wonderful actor named Maureen O'Hara, Donald Crisp, the great character actor from the 30s, 40s, 50s, a woman by the name of Sarah Allgood, another amazing actor, actress. And it's just about this family and this young boy growing up there. Roddy McDowell at the time was, I think, six or seven years old, maybe a little older. Oh. I don't know if it was his first film. And uh, it is. It's heartbreaking because it's about the fact that we all, at some point, have to grow up. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and the disillusion that comes with that, the realization that we're mortal when we yeah. lose members of our family. Uh, I'm welling up talking about it, <laughs> interestingly. And the uh, also, the searchers, just for the the sheer moving making brilliance of it uh and it's 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 tough to watch the searchers it's, it's about a, a, a two guys who are out looking for a, a their a relative of theirs who was captured by the uh native americans the indians uh many years before and they're sure she's still alive 
And so they're looking for, and it's a, it's a saga. One of the most brilliantly shot movies ever. Uh, I, I, there's so many of these films, guys, I could talk about, but I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank because there are too many. Yeah, understood. Well, like, like you said, you know, the first two or three that come to mind. Work, yeah, yeah. I think we've yeah. got those. Yeah, yeah. The Searchers, to me, looks very similar to, or sounds very similar to Bone Tomahawk in the, uh, in the plot anyway, just, you know, searching for the, uh, the rescued party. If that would, yeah, yeah, I think this was the, what's the one that you mentioned? Uh, bone Tomahawk. It's more yeah. recent, like last 10 years or so. Oh, then I, I think it's probably a remake of the searchers. Could yeah. Be. That are in very least inspired by it. Yeah. In terms of going back to the horror conversation, yeah. do you see any common thread about what kinds of horror you like in cannibalism, occult, metaphysical, supernatural? I like, I like horror that, as I, I think said originally about the the way that the thing was directed. I like horror that leaves more to your imagination. That okay. it makes you think about what what could be happening that you're not seeing. Mm-hmm. Because I think that the imagination is much more vivid. That one's imagination is much more vividly, you know, we always, uh, I think, we think, that something is worse is going to happen than act, that actually happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the kind, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I became literally overnight a huge Mike Flanagan fan, because everything that I've watched of his, he hearkens to me back to the great filmmakers of the 30s, 40s, and, and then into the 70s and 80s, the golden ages of American cinema, when uh, it's what you didn't see. Right. Mm-hmm that really make you think and also that there are there are thematically things going on that are beyond just the dismemberment of somebody or being someone being attacked and being surprised and being shocked Mm. that the shock is also tied to the fact that you are involved in the characters right i think that's one of the brilliant things about fright night Mm -hmm. the tom holland fright night yeah uh, is that tom invested from the very beginning, that when I first read that script, I said all of these characters are vividly drawn, and so you care about them. Mm-hmm. You care about Evil Ed, so yeah. that's why that amazing scene where Jerry Dandridge says to Evil Ed, "Nobody will ever, nobody will ever bully you again. Mm-hmm. I'll take care of you," is so yeah. powerful. Yeah, it really helps when you identify with your characters. Oh, like absolutely, that. And-, and everybody's felt that way. Yeah, I think you know, growing up. That they were somehow we've talked we talked about this other uh, earlier that we we are the other rather than mm-hmm. being part of what we consider to be the cool crowd, right. you know. So those are the movies that really stay with me, uh, and uh, the one the, the people who do it, you know. There's that scene that you just you talked about earlier. I can't remember if it was Chris or Steve about the scene in Gerald's Gerald's way. Oh yeah, yeah uh, of seeing that figure in the shadow. Mm-hmm. When the woman is handcuffed to the bed and she thinks she said, does she see it? Does she not see it? It's not totally clear that there's something there, but at the same time, the imagination provides. Exactly. Oh, it was it's so of your own imagination oh. or in power of your own imagination. Oh my God. Brief tangent, but I'm surprised that we've on, on this topic of, you know, leaving more to your imagination. I'm surprised we've gotten this far in the call and not talked about Hitchcock. Ah, Oh, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the master <laughs> the master of that. Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. that is that why uh, we didn't talk about it? Because it's too obvious? Probably, yeah. Yeah, probably. <clears throat> it was all in our imagination. Yeah, and there are any number of Hitchcock movies that I could watch over and over, except mm. for Vertigo. Do you have issues with Vertigo? No, I'm just not a big fan of oh. Vertigo, and I'm also not a big Kim Novak fan. So. Ah. <clears throat> but that's, you know, that's just my... Yeah, we all have we all have subjective tastes. Yes, indeed. Uh, but you know, but from uh, uh, if you want to talk about horror movies, Psycho, yes. I could watch Psycho over and over again. Right. Uh, so this is the point in the call where I would I'm going to bring up the things that I think are common reoccurring themes, and then we can talk about that for a little bit. Um, sure. The two things that I'm hearing coming up the most are emotion and escape. Hmm. Obviously, identifying mm-hmm. with other people, being empathic, and then the escape into imagination. Um, I'm wondering, maybe even partially as a response to the length of the empathy that, you know, feeling like I need to escape because I can't, like, this is too much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Actually, good point. So then, 
I think it's obvious why those things are important to you. So the next question after that would be why horror? Couldn't you explore some of these things in other genres? And in your case, maybe you have, cause I've seen your IMDb list. So maybe, oh. uh, uh, do you have anything in particular in mind? Um, no, but I mean, <sighs> well, okay. Uh, we talked about earlier, we talked about a tale of two cities. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I had the great good fortune of being cast as both Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton in that movie. Now, for those of your listeners who are not familiar with the great Charles Dickens book, The Tale of Two Cities, the basic plot is that uh, it's uh, a matter of one character who is in need of redemption taking the place of another character uh, in order that that character might live and live on with the woman that the man who takes his place is in love with as well. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the sort of central plot line of the story, but it also takes place during the French Revolution. Yes. Uh, which is a much bigger canvas. And it, it has great resonance for me it, when you talk about empathy and uh, caring for characters, because here we have the... The one character, Charles Darnay, who is a dissolute, drunk, his life is, he, he talks about, and I, there's a phrase that he uses that is so uh, heartbreaking. I keep it written down somewhere so that I can remember it, and I, I, I don't have it in front of me. But he talks about the fact that he is, he's a lost cause, mm-hmm. that he'll never be any better than he is at that moment. And he's saved, in a way, initially by his love for this woman, because he wants to be a good person for her. So he stops drinking, he straightens himself up, he starts uh, actually hanging out with the woman and her husband and the, their child. And then the, the husband, Charles Darnay, has to go back to France, because uh, uh, someone who was a loyal servant of his when he was growing up has been arrested and he has to save him. So Charles goes back and is arrested as an aristocrat and Mm -hmm. is sentenced to death. Right. And Carton decides to try to save him and essentially hatches a plan in which he takes his place at the guillotine. And that's the crowning moment of the, of the picture. And he ends up saying, as he's about to be executed, it's a far, far better thing that I do that I do, I do that I have ever done. It's a far, far better place I go to mm-hmm. than I have ever known. I've heard this quote, but never knew the full context. Oh yeah, it's a great. It's it's the it's the final quote of the book and of the of the movie, and he's he's guillotined, and he does it in full realization that his life is over, but that he's living for a higher purpose, mm. and. Uh, I think that redemption is uh, a, a common theme in all films. Uh, it's a common theme in horror movies. You know, it's a common oh, yeah. theme in Fright Night. You know, the boy who cried wolf mm-hmm. didn't cry wolf. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's part of uh, all literary works. I mean, yeah. Steve, isn't it a part of the hero's journey? Yeah. Redemption? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, the great Joseph Campbell, the hero's mm-hmm. journey. I was wondering um, if you would come up on this call. <laughs> <laughs> Steve is a rather large fan of the Campbells. Oh, yeah. I, I haven't the read them in a long time, but uh, I, I, I should go back. Yeah. Uh, at, at any rate, uh, and, and so uh, to get a chance to be a part of something like that, mm-hmm. uh, where not only you're working with the, the cast was the creme de la creme of the, the, the classical British theater and film. Mm. It was uh, life transforming in a lot of ways to get to embody that kind of thematic character in a in a piece that famous uh, was uh, a great time in my life. The vibe I'm getting from you in this these last few minutes is uplifting. Well, yeah, I, I, uplifting, but not necessarily happy ending. No. Yeah. Hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopeful in the sense that it gives you, gives you hope for mankind mm-hmm. that we're not all just venal creatures who are uh, only interested in, you know, it's all self-interest that there are possibilities 
of there being great acts of courage and charity and empathy in, in our civilization, particularly now. Yeah. When we're seeing a lot of it sort of, you know, kind of thrown by the wayside. So it's always existed. Yeah. And there are, there are people, by the way, who believe, and if you look at it in a, in a more subjective, I'm sorry, objective way, who believe that there has never been a better time in human history for the largest number of people than now, despite the fact that we're facing perhaps climate catastrophe and war that there and deep division, political division, that just in terms of people being able to eat and put a roof over their heads, that there's never been a better time in history. Mm. Uh, that there are positives out there. I, I worry for my kids and my particularly my grandchildren. I talk to my kids and my kids say, I'm not so worried. I'm worried for my kids. Mm -hmm. I'm worried for the next generation, not my generation. I have a question and I'm, I'm going to struggle to find the right words to say. Yeah, it. yeah, sure. This grasping for hope. I'm wondering if you feel that it's a response to something that you've seen externally in the world outside of yourself, or if it's a response to something internal. I, I see it every day. I see it in, <clears throat> you know, I have, I, I have, through my life, sought out people who are in service uh, because I honestly feel that despite the fact that, you know, we think of actors as being narcissistic, that we are in service to something. We are in service to providing a mirror to people so that they can see themselves in a different way mm -hmm. and perhaps come to a better understanding of themselves. And uh, I have also, uh, well, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I just did a podcast with my ex-wife, Susan Sarandon. Mm -hmm. And Susan is a very well-known social activist who had just before the podcast that she and I did, we did a live podcast at a theater up here where I live. And she had just gotten arrested in Albany, New York for picketing with a group and I'm ashamed to say that I can't remember the name of the group just at this very moment, but it's a, a, a group that represents restaurant workers, okay. primarily restaurant workers who are black and brown, because they're the ones who do the most menial jobs, uh, who are exempt from laws that govern minimum wage. Mm -hmm. And so she was there protesting about a new law to raise the minimum wage in the state of New York but that was exempting these restaurant workers mm -hmm. because uh, supposedly they also make tips. Yes. But generally yeah. speaking, most of them don't. That old chestnut. Yeah, exactly. So she got arrested and the policeman who arrested her because she was supposedly quote unquote obstructing justice, right? She was obstructing a walkway or something. But that's, that's sort of what people who are well-known and who are social activists do. They go places to, to call attention to because their presence calls attention to a particular cause. Mm -hmm. So they arrested Susan, among other people. And the guy who arrested her, she tells this story during the podcast, and she said the guy who arrested her, the policeman, was very nervous. And he said, I, I, I'm not quite sure what to say to you. You know, yeah, I have to put you in handcuffs. She said, wait, wait. She said to him, it's okay. You have to understand you're helping us. You're helping us. What you're doing is not bad. It's okay because it's drawing attention to this problem. Mm -hmm. There are people like that in the world that I admire greatly. <clears throat> There are organizations in the world, Doctors Without Borders, <clears throat> trying to think of others. There's an organization called Finca that makes loans to third world women to start their own businesses, microloans. Yep. Yep. Uh, there's an organization called Heifer that gives uh, animals to people in <laughs> third world countries so that they can start businesses raising the animals, uh, breeding them, uh, 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 providing milk, providing eggs, whatever. And these are, they're truly, you know, 
selfless human beings around here, mm-hmm. believe it or not, that are doing great work that we don't hear about a lot. Mm. I have heard quite a few of the things that you've talked about here. Um, <clears throat> I've also worked in the restaurant business myself, so there's some comments oh, yeah. there. Yeah. Um, we didn't talk about it earlier, but I did watch the interview that you did with Tom Holland, and there's a couple different things we could talk about there, but don't want to get tangential here. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> last question. Is there anything that you've thought of that might be relevant that hasn't come up on the call, or did you think of something and then the conversation took a left turn and you didn't get a, get a chance to say? Well, we... Hopefully, we were making left turns constantly. (laughs) (laughs) It does tend to happen on every show. Yeah, yeah, Uh, which is good. You know, that's I find that with my podcast, same thing. You know, I think I have a kind of direction. I've got sort of set questions that I ask people. It's about growing up around food because I grew up in a restaurant. My dad owned a restaurant, so I -hmm. I worked in my dad's restaurant for for eight years, ten years before I went away to college, and the memories that we have been. Uh, after in in this particular conversation we talk about them i encourage everybody to explore their memory because we leave behind so little that's of importance yeah in in the big picture but we leave behind a lot in the micro picture mm-hmm. when it comes to the fa- our families and the people we love and those who love us the ripples. Yeah. <clears throat> the ripples, the ripples, the ripples, and they happen. And and that goes as far as, you know, yesterday, my wife and I went to a, a theater performance in New Jersey. A friend of ours had written a play that we wanted to go and see, and it was a wonderful, wonderful performance, a two-hander, that is two-character play. And as we pulled up, there was a guy drunk in the street. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And, and and he was just lying there. Oh. And suddenly the community coalesced around him. A couple of people pulled up on bikes. Another guy got stopped his car and got out of his car and went over to him. And they were all obviously people from the community. It was very clear that they were. And they helped the guy up. And they they said, "Okay, come on." And they I don't know, you know, what they actually did with him, but there was a, a, a an immediate reaction from the people who live in that area and it's it's a a, an area that is you know it's not an upscale area at all and i wonder if it would happen in an upscale area quite frankly probably not no i imagine he would just get overlooked and walk past yeah often that's that's Uh, quite wholesome they would call somebody else to deal with (laughs) yeah right And, and it's often what happens, I do a, the podcast, as I've mentioned several times, and I'm just going to do it until you guys are <laughs> completely falling over from boredom. But uh, it's called Cooking by Heart, and it has to do with you know the childhood memories I had around food. So I ask people whom I know, uh, and I know a lot of people in show business and the music business, in the theater world. So that's where my primary sort of source of guests come from. But I also talk to my primary care physician, who's a nutritionist. Uh, I talked to a guy who's a federal judge who I went to college with uh, because he has a very sort of interesting background in food. He's a gourmet cook. I talked to a, just talked to a guy in Holland in mm. the Netherlands mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. cooks with cannabis products. Mm-hmm. Ah, <laughs> he, nice. It's called high cuisine. Uh, He's a chef. Appropriate. Yeah. It's a, it, and the, but it's brilliant, the, the oh, stuff yeah. that he does. But, but he, t- again, talks about growing up. And, and what it was like going into a, a McDonald's and throwing some magic mushrooms on a, Mc, a, a Big Mac. Uh, <laughs> uh, we all have stories. And I just, you know, I encourage your audience to, to follow your own, to go back and, you know, tell your kids about things that happened when you were young. Mm. Yeah. Make your own stories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Is that thunder? Yes, it's Woo, well, by you, quite Chris. Over here. Where, yeah. are, where are you guys? I'm in Florida. Steve's in Ohio. Yeah, oh. I, I've moved around quite a bit, but uh, yeah, I used to live in Florida, and then I cur- re- currently moved it to, or- bleh, <laughs> to Ohio for work. Oh. Um, live in Chicago, Milwaukee, Philly, Jersey, Florida. Around. Yes, been around. Well, we uh, appreciate your time. It was a pleasant conversation. Yes, Excellent stuff. You. 
Um, I am going to get with you off of line, offline to uh, follow up, get some pictures that we can use for um, slideshow, get a bio and put together a bio page on our website, all that good oh, stuff. Oh, great, great. Um, I'll just say closing here. Thank you to anybody out there listening. Please do come visit us at horrormakesushappy.com. Um, you can support us on Patreon or just tell a friend. <laughs>